Football on Off The Ball With Sky Get more of the sports you love on Sports Extra with BT Sport and Premier Sports Welcome back to Tuesdays Off The Ball Richie McCormick here with you until 10 o'clock tonight A little bit later on we'll be talking to ex dog boss Vinnie Perth in the wake of Shamrock Rovers 3-0 defeat away to Ludogrets in the second qualifying round of the Champions League Rovers right up against it ahead of the return leg in Tallis Stadium a week from tonight uh, but first joining us to discuss all manner of issues uh, we'll get to Manchester United and their pre-season tour of Australia and the forever booing of, of Harry Maguire momentarily but John Bruin joins us on the line I'm delighted to say welcome back to the show John uh, good evening, Richie. How are you? Not too bad, thank you. Not too bad. Um, I know you're a bit of an aficionado as it comes to, to football documentaries. I know this Arsenal all or nothing would have oh. caught your eye a little bit later on. Um, like, what did you make? Like, it's hard to gauge anything by the trailer. Um, but yeah. What yeah, did, what did yeah. you make of Mikel and Co. from the bit we've seen so far? <laughs> well, yeah, I got a, I've got the press release this afternoon, uh, and yeah, clicked on the YouTube. Um, yeah, uh, very much son of Pep Guardiola. Uh, overused <laughs> guys, um, and those set pieces um, in the Arsenal dressing room looked quite similar to the Pep Guardiola stuff from City's version. That was an all or nothing as well, wasn't it? I think so. Yeah. Um, and um, I'm told actually that uh, Mikel was not fully on board with this project, and I think he's, I mean, if you actually look at his mentions of it in his press conferences last season, you, you would see that. Um, so uh, with all with all these things, there's that element, isn't there, where it, it, it feels very, very staged. Uh, he's not a natural performer like Jose Mourinho, who I think saw that as a chance to to soften his public image, and I think that worked actually. Um, and Pep Guardiola, well, uh, Pep uh, is a guy I think he's had four or five documentaries made about him. He's pretty comfortable in that arena. I'm not sure Mikel Arteta is quite so comfortable, though. Um, if I may say, there's someone who seems quite fond of himself. Um, so maybe he might grow into that a bit more. Yeah, I'd say if there's a, a Series 2, Mikkel will suddenly find himself on board with that. Like, Do you think, like you mentioned there, is is, is overuse of the, the term guys? Like, I remember... Like when I worked uh, in HMV many moons ago, they used to have this like managerial system whereby people would go through, you know, they'd be like uh, almost like regional kind of, you know, team leaders, etc. So they'd be underneath yeah. the assistant manager and the manager. One of the things I remember learning is that they were encouraged to call everybody mate. And in managerial courses in HMV, you're encouraged to call everybody mate. Like, is this a thing from La Masia where you, by you have to call everybody guys? Or, you know, a certain, that has to be a certain trigger word to make sure that there's a level of friendly that's not too friendly, but it's friendly enough. Also has a bit of air of, an air of authority. I've long had a, a, a problem with the word guys. I've always felt it's uh, quite insincere. But when I go back up to the northwest of England, I hear that it's used quite a lot. It's used quite a lot in restaurants. You know, people come over, you know, is everything all right there, guys? You know, that type of thing. And um, I think Pep, uh, who is, you know, uh, an Atlanticist and spent a bit of time in America, of course, uh, which is, I think, where he's probably learned the majority of his, say, verbal um, English, picked it up. And Arteta, I mean, he's, Arteta spent 10 years playing in England, didn't he, before he became a manager. Um, he's probably followed along with that one. But, yeah, I've always... It feels insincere, but it's also like an international word, if you see yeah. what I mean. It's almost like an Esperanto term, uh, sort of CNN in your hotel room 
when you're sat in Bulgaria with nothing to do, that type of thing, that type of work. Translate towards the uh, the different kind of people involved in, the, in a dressing room, whether it be the Brazilians or French or Spanish Absolutely. or, or yeah. you know, from West Africa or wherever it happens to be. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got uh, international recognition, I suppose. The word mate probably yet to be uh, to be used in the natives of Recife or somewhere like that. You yeah. Well, you see, uh, Eddie Jones, the England rugby manager, has dominion over the word mate, which kind of punctuates every sentence that he says. So I don't think there's many left uh, to go around for other people around there. Like, like my one, my, I've mentioned it before, nine o'clock there. Like in, in terms of the football documentaries, the behind the wall, behind the scenes, flying the wall stuff. My one is always. The go-to is the City documentary from '81 that Granada produced yeah. with Malcolm Allison going, John Bond coming in, and the pantomime villain. Like none of these docs that I've seen in the past while, they kind of have a a softening image, as you say, for the likes of Mourinho, or they try to get you a bit of personality for the likes of Guardiola or Arteta. You don't get a pantomime villain like Peter Swales in in these documentaries these days, unfortunately. Well, I, I think part of that is that people like Peter Swales don't exist anymore. I mean, that, that there is a man very much of his time. Uh, he also makes a, 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 a wonderful cameo in uh, the Graham Taylor documentary as well. I think he was chairman of one of the FA boards or something. Yeah, an, an amazing performer. And of course, that, that documentary you talk about there, there's that sort of set piece, isn't there, between Malcolm Allison and John Bond, who'd actually known each other for, I think, 30 years or so at the time, both who come, come through West Ham and uh, this sort of enmity between them. And it, again, actually don't make him like, like Big Mal anymore. Uh, it would be pretty interesting, actually, if Mikel Arteta decided to wear a fedora, sip champagne, uh, uh, bring phase three models into the bath, which is all what Mark Mallison did. Uh, maybe that's for the next series, as you, as you suggested might happen. Uh, it distracts and detracts a little bit away from the inanity, John, of... Uh, pre-season because during the course of the last uh, few days I've seen headlines like uh, Manchester United are back given their level of performance under Eric Ten Hag and their pre-season friendly so far and uh, Liverpool's Darwin Nunez is under pressure despite the fact he hasn't played a competitive game for them yet um, the main headline today though that jumped out of United's pre-season game with Crystal Palace was the booing yet again of Harry Maguire It's <clears throat> if it wasn't silly before I think it definitely is now yeah, um, it, it feels to me as if uh, those supporters over in Australia, and there were well, many tens of thousands of them in the MCG, uh, were almost like copycat behaviour uh, what went on at Old Trafford. Now, I used to attend Old Trafford at a time when it was strictly verboten to uh, boo any players. And I think the first I remember this ever happening to uh, was Neil Webb when he left the pitch very slowly uh, during a, a vital game against Nottingham Forest. And then we'd probably be nearly 20 years until it happened again uh, when, when you know, things started going a bit wrong for Manchester United. Um, I, I have a lot of sympathy for Harry Maguire. Uh, I think uh, he played a lot of last season injured. I think uh, he was... A player who has to fit into a system. Uh, the system he fits into best is that uh, the England player in the Gareth Southgate, not the one that uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer had to play when Cristiano Ronaldo came into the team, and it wasn't and it didn't work either when Ralph Rangnick was there. Um, I think I think it's fair to say that 
there is this idea, which I would disagree with, that Harry Maguire at 80 million was overpriced. Um, and, you know, I used to watch him play for Hull City and think, there's a promising player. I wonder how far he'll go. And I never thought he'd end up captain of Manchester United. Um, but then again, I never thought he'd star for England in a run to the semi-finals of the World Cup and the final of Euro 2020. So there is a player there. I don't think it helps fans booing him. And that's always been my sense of being a supporter and also a, a, a player as well. And of course, you know, back in the days of Neil Webb, he didn't have social media. And of course, that adds further fuel to the fire. And so that means that fans in Australia are able to copy that behaviour. Um, who's, who's getting anything out of that, out of booing Harry Maguire? If you're a Manchester United fan, and these people may not be Manchester United fans, they might be a rogue group of Crystal Palace fans down in Melbourne. But um, what are they getting out of that? What, what Booing the player, it's not going to make him any better, is it? That would be I think the um, <clears throat> the Melbourne booing is a case, like you mentioned, of monkey see, monkey do. Like they've seen yeah. the Old Trafford fans towards the well middle part of last end, uh, latter end of last season, when things were just really toxic at United and really did need uh, an, an overhaul and a change. And the sense was the excuses you heard as, as regards for the booing was, well, we're not necessarily booing him, we're booing the concept of playing an out of form player in a failing team and things like that need changing. It doesn't really hold water when it's a pre-season friendly in Melbourne against Crystal Palace. Um, no. And I don't think it will hold water when they have a new manager in there now who's insistent that he retains the captaincy. Well, yeah, I mean, OK, if you look at United's transfer business, they brought in you know, Lissandro Martinez, they've already got Rafael Varane. There would be those who uh, don't like uh, or don't trust Harry Maguire that would expect him to move out of the team. But... One of the things about Maguire um, is that within a club which is listing pretty badly, he does provide that element of leadership. Okay, we can we can say that Solskjaer as a manager was was ultimately it didn't happen for him, but I think Maguire was an important player and a player that delivered. And it, you know, the last year or so he's played badly, but I I, I don't know. I mean, as I say. Um, Maguire, there is a player there. There is someone that can produce something for Manchester United, and I'm, I would imagine the hope is, and Ten Hag appears to believe that if you set up your midfield, that you don't expose your, your centre back who isn't particularly pacey, then you can make something of that team and make something of a player who is actually a good organiser of defence and seems to have a pretty decent relationship with the goalkeeper in David De Gea. Um, it, it's. I, I, I don't know. I actually, I, I've actually been to the Melbourne Manchester United Supporters Club back in uh, 1998 when I was a, but a young man. Okay. Uh, and we watched uh, England play in the World Cup in 1998. And uh, we, my main memory of it is that um, as I left the Harry Ramsden's chippy in which this was held, we <laughs> we walked into the streets, which turned out to be those where Ramsey Street is based. Ah. Neighbours the now late lamented TV programme. So I wonder if they, they still base themselves there. Judging by some of the social media videos, it seems to have gone to a bigger place than that these days. But um, the people I met down there did not seem the type that would boo a Manchester United player, but times have moved on, haven't they? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, fan bases for clubs have kind of um, grown a little bit since then. Um, they're probably a little bit more closely held at the time. I think the sense that 
there's a sense of own like in, there's a sense of ownership around the team for people that are based in for, for the far east or in australia yeah, or yeah. in america etc cetera, etc cetera, in a way that i don't think there was before they felt like they're maybe clinging on to the coattails of a team before whereas now they they really there is a global sense to these clubs to the liverpools the manchester united's that people in america people in australia people in singapore and malaysia do hold a little bit of sway in terms of their opinion well, yeah, and I suppose that comes down to the finances, doesn't it? When yeah. you hear people like Richard Arnold, the CEO, speak, they uh, place great uh, importance in attracting those markets, and you can see the way that, um, you know, I mean, ultimately, these tours around the world uh, are not what any manager would like, um, except for the players. Arsene Wenger was a manager who absolutely loathed going on these tours because it would mean his players were in no condition to start the season. Going to Australia and kicking off in two and a half, three weeks or whatever does not seem very sensible. But it is such a huge part of the profit and loss sheet for these clubs that they have to service these deals and that's part of it. And, and as you say, yeah, um, again, social media has given people an ownership uh, of being a Manchester United fan rather than just, we're pretty much users of cash register before, they still are. But there is, a, there is that extra stake in there now, isn't there? Mm. The social media thing has added that extra dimension. Not necessarily always a positive one, but here we are. I'm still trying to imagine the, the Neil Webb scenario uh, being played out on social media, particularly how Shelley Webb may have handled that uh, or otherwise uh, back in the early 90s and probably another story yeah. for another day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, people probably need to look that up. Um, social media obviously has a, a massive uh, influence. I don't know, it's probably too strong a word, but it's a vocal thing as regards transfer business. Um, and, and Manchester United have obviously, you know, needed a clear out. There's probably one massive asset that maybe needs to be shifted on and they don't know whether or not that can happen or not. But as regards the incomings, there's still a lot of question marks. Like the Lissandra Martinez deal still has to be, you know, rubber stamped. And yeah. they seem to be waiting and waiting and waiting on this Frankie de Jong uh, signing to happen to such a degree you're kind of wondering, well, did you not have an alternative in case this doesn't work out? Because there's every chance that this won't. Yeah, yeah. I think the, the dread scenario for Manchester United fans is uh, a midfield of Fred and Scott McTominay lining up, both of whom, I, I should say, by the way, I think are decent players, but probably need a better player around them. Um, listen, if I was in business or the football business, I really would not be wanting to rely on Barcelona at this point. Um, uh, they're... Uh, activities appear to be a little shifty, if I can say that. Um, owing the guy 17 million euros or whatever it is, and then expecting him not to uh, want that money because he loves the club. Well, that's an interesting way of looking at things, isn't it? Um, and uh, you you have this scenario where, yeah, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely correct. Um, it's almost like a Manchester United tradition, though, isn't it? Those big players that United have looked at, fans have pinned their hopes on all summer, and then they've not arrived. I mean, we had Cesc Fabregas infamously uh, back in the summer of 2013. Uh, before that, Wesley Schneider, who's yeah. linked every every summer. Um, I remember there was one, Meza Ozil was one. Yeah, obviously. Alex Ferguson was caught watching him in a pre-season game, and that got everyone's hopes up when he... He went to Real Madrid instead. And um, there just seems to be this one player. that, uh, And and what often happens is that they maybe arrive the next year. Ander Herrera was one as well. 
Uh, remember all that messing around with uh, lawyers and stuff like that. Manchester United get themselves in these terrible tangles, played out publicly. They get played by the Spanish clubs, who I do see, I think, uh, see Manchester United coming a little bit. Um, De Jong, uh, obviously a talented player, um, and very talented, and obviously Den Hag will know him well. But I'm not sure that the player that I've seen when I've watched Barcelona is quite worth this fuss. I don't know quite what I'm what I'm supposed to be seeing here. And actually, the fact that Barcelona are willing to get rid of him suggests they hold a not dissimilar view to me on that as well. Yeah, the Barcelona situation is an odd one because I th- clearly, like I read the other day, that they're using money they're getting for a rights sale now yeah. rather than uh, <laughs> using it sensibly going forward and going big now to maybe try and bring the success that they had in recent years but owing as you say 17 million to one player and them not willing to, to cough it up despite the fact that they're finding it for, for Robert Lewandowski is another story the, the, as I mentioned that asset that probably needs to go uh, Cristiano Ronaldo like do we know what the like feeling is around the club as regards whether or not he should go, whether they want him to leave, whether that thing of he's part of our plans, he's going to spearhead our attack. Like, is that all for show, or is there a sense behind the scenes that you know we're actually pretty off, pretty better off getting rid of this lad? Well, the thing is, Ten Hag and his sit down with reporters, which would have been you know, Sunday night going into Monday, um, appeared to. I, I, I don't get the impression that Ten Hag is. Yet moved into the to the world of uh, Ferguson style kidology, um, seems to suggest that he he's okay with him being around. Um, though again, maybe he has to say that. Maybe there's commercial deals tied up, but ultimately uh, there is someone who is tying up an enormous amount of wages. Um, uh, and uh, as I said, um, if you look back twelve months ago. Uh, before Cristiano Ronaldo had signed for Manchester United, a lot of people were tipping Manchester United to challenge for the title uh, under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Uh, Ronaldo arrived, and um, within weeks, it was clear that Manchester United were not going to challenge for the title. Now, you can't roll the clock back, of course not, but you can rectify that mistake by trying to get him off the books. And uh, The thing is, with, the, with someone like Ronaldo, because he's his own nation-state, it's left to him and his representative, George Mendes, and various other acolytes to ship him around all these clubs. Bayern Munich don't want him. Uh, Atletico Madrid don't want him. There was a link with Sporting Lisbon uh, that came up just the other day, which seems to me to be quite sensible. One of the stipulations is Ronaldo wants to play Champions League football. Sporting Lisbon, who has made his bones as a player. Uh, I think the only public pronouncement we've had on this from Ronaldo is that this was a fake. Well, that's the one that made the most sense to me. Uh, not that supporting this, we could afford to pay him any money, but then why does he need the money? Um, this, I mean, Ronaldo's future, if you think about it, was sorted out very late in the transfer window last year. I expect this saga will be played out over a similar timescale this year. Um, it's deeply tedious. It's the question that everyone gets asked, yeah. and no one really knows the answer to it. And you have to suspect that it's it's almost like a Gordian knot for United and Ronaldo himself. Uh, a lot of face uh, is trying to be saved at the moment, but someone's going to have to lose face at a certain point, aren't they? It's interesting that like there are this handful of players like Ronaldo, 
Neymar would fit into that as well that are so big and yeah. the, the notion of them rather than the reality of them is so big that there's no room for them to go like Ronaldo has reached a point whereby his wages have ballooned to such a degree that there's only a handful that can afford to pay them and within that handful only Manchester United at the moment seem to want them and even then that's a bit iffy similarly like uh, you know Galtier has gone in at PSG and decided that he doesn't want any bling bling football anymore Neymar is the kind of you know red flag towards all of that there's no way that anybody else can afford the wages you end up having these really talented uh, ageing footballers who nobody really wants because nobody can really afford them and you're kind of wondering who are they for then and what purpose do they serve yeah yeah and you, you, you know, you've got this this idea of sort of almost solo acts haven't you um, you know joining some sort of super group I think and, and that that is a model that's failed at PSG we've seen that I think if Galtier who's clearly a very very good manager is given the chance to construct a proper PSG team around Keelan and Bappe they might have a decent chance of putting together a decent team. They've signed a player whose name escapes me uh, that Newcastle wanted, the young striker. Hekatiki. Uh, yes, that's the guy. Yeah. He's really good. Yeah, and that's the type of signing that a club like PSG that's progressive should be wanting to make. Not signing the next, or the, you know, uh, signing Lionel Messi, for example, who is still at PSG, let's be put. Yeah. Um, now, you know, the... the some talk over the last couple of days into Miami, some big talk that maybe they would like Lionel Messi for their project. I'm sure PSG, underneath all this, would really like that to happen soon. But again, like the Ronaldo thing, you can't admit it for whatever reason because you might lose social media likes, you might lose sponsorship opportunities. And so, yeah, you have these these listing Titanic-style ships moving around the waters of football. Um Listen, uh, the, the Ronaldo and Messi era has been wonderful football, um, uh, but I think it's come to an end. And it, it's like all of these things, like all political careers, they sort of end in some element of failure as well, don't they? I mean, the hope would be for, for both of them, they sign off with a World Cup or something like that. But then again, you've got this scenario, Ronaldo thinks he can play till he's 40. Well, who seriously is going to do that? And... Um, I remember, you know, back years ago, uh, older players would drop down. Kevin Keegan to Newcastle. Yeah. Uh, Johan Cruyff left Ajax Amsterdam and went to Feyenoord and then won the league just because he could in Holland, just to show them. Now, do, do either do, do any of those players, those players you mentioned, Neymar, Messi, Ronaldo, do they not just fancy one last job, like you know, the Dirty Dozen or something like that, and just you know, to pull a club up by its bootstraps, be a hero? somewhere smaller, you know, go to go to a club, say like Marseille or you know, even Newcastle, who could probably afford that, and become a hero for, for, for coming to those clubs. It seems that that's not part of the model these days. They have to be attached to these other blue chip companies. And I'm not... And Ronaldo is going to end up almost in exile from the game that's, that's made him, that, that he has made himself. Just needs to be a, a sense of reality about them that you know you can't necessarily keep earning 400 500 grand a week just Absolutely. because of the, of the name like go like like you mentioned there and it's kind of brilliantly detailed in in that new Cruyff biography that's out there like of, of Cruyff going to Feyenoord and doing it because he can now, there was a sense at the time he needed to keep playing because he needed the money I don't think yeah. Cristiano Ronaldo needs the money so maybe <laughs> kind of temper your expectations a little bit take that move to like what was the one recently it was like Arjen Robin went back to Groningen 
in in Holland because yeah, there's local team and enjoyed yeah. yeah. So like that that final chapter, that kind of valedictory thing of of taking another team and and being the big fish and. Uh, bringing a little bit of stardust to them, that would be, uh, and they'd be remembered fondly, more fondly than they would be for demanding four hundred k to to play the odd match here and there for a, for a big blue chip company, as you mentioned. Yeah, and and another thing that you do wonder is about enjoying the football. Now there is this there's been this story, hasn't there, about Ronaldo over the summer? You know these um, these very detailed reported pieces on where it went wrong for Ralph Rangnick last season. And one of these ideas was that uh, that Ronaldo wanted training at Manchester United to be, in inverted commas, fun. Yeah? He didn't want to do the, the hard sweat, you know, the, the, the pressing work that a, a coach like Ralph Rangnick would push. Now, if you want things to be fun, you know, maybe go somewhere where you're allowed to. Um, I mean, at Manchester City, he clearly was allowed to, to do what he liked, but somewhere where, you know, People are going to listen, follow your lead, and you know th- th- there must be a you know a small club in, in France or spotting this would be a fine example that you could go to and just keep living the dream, and you can still play for Portugal. And there was always this idea with Messi, wasn't it, that you go back to Rosario, back to Newell's old boys. When's that going to happen? Um, the romance has gone out of the game a bit, hasn't it? With stuff like that. Just a bit. Even going back to Neil Webb taking his last lap around Forest again to bring it back to, to the old <laughs> midfield general at Old Trafford and the city ground. Um, listen, everything always comes back to Neil Webb. It always does. John Brown, thanks so much for taking him out to speak to us this evening. Uh, lovely to talk to you, Richard. Earlier on this evening, Shamrock Rovers beaten 3-0 in Razgrad to Ludogorets, the Bulgarian champions of the last 11 years, uh, putting two goals past Rovers in the first half, both of those from Piero Sertiriu and the third coming in added time through Igor Thiago. Uh, the substitute uh, laid on for the hosts. So what had looked like a, I guess, a workable task for Shamrock Rovers in the second half looks like becoming a very, 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 very difficult one back at Tallis Stadium. Vinnie Perth, the ex-Dundalk boss, had eyes on this one. Vinny, welcome back to the show. Yeah, how are you doing? How you keeping good? Not too bad, thanks. Not too bad, despite your uh, your blaspheming off the air uh, about my yeah. appearance. Oh, on right. that's, that's fine. That's fine. Don't worry about that. We won't let it, we won't let it come between us, Vinny. Um, no. The game tonight, like... F- I was trying to keep eyes on it as best I can while presenting the show uh, live for the full three hours. It seemed to be Rovers were kind of under the cosh for the first half hour, 40 minutes, uh, conceded twice within that spell. Started the second half, actually looked to gain more control and then really suffered that sucker punch uh, right at the end, which made things very, very difficult for them. I don't know if that's an accurate summation to, to what you saw. Yeah, no, it's very, very, very close to it. Um, obviously, in 90 minutes, you sum it up in 30 seconds. You wouldn't be far off it. Um, Rovers, you feared for them at half time. I felt they could be on the end of a, of a sort of a serious beating, for want of a better word. Alan Manis has made two, three excellent, outstanding saves that you thought had kept the tie alive. But ultimately, um, late, late in injury time, the third goal is has most likely killed the tie off and um it's disappointing it's disappointing um really really rooting for rovers tonight but it just felt they were outclassed uh on the night um much much better in the second half and um inter- the subs subs made a big difference uh Graham Bork in particular mm. but ultimately um yeah just weren't weren't good enough and uh, unfortunately you know you need to be realistic as well we had one sort of half shot from Graham Bork which whether it was a cross or shot, I don't know. Keeper saved it comfortably. But beyond that, 
Rovers didn't trouble them from an attacking point of view. So you'd have uh, you would have to say it's a really difficult uh, tie now, and you would imagine it's gone from them. At times, they look really pinned back during the course of that first half, and I guess there's a lot of um, kind of you just have to be somewhat conservative because you don't want that scoreline to become a cricket one during the course of the first 45 minutes. But it's not as if Rovers, in terms of numbers, would have been swamped in midfield because they did have um, McCann in there, they had Dylan Watts in there, um, they had Richie Towell essentially playing as a withdrawn striker so you can count him as another body in midfield. What led to them being overrun to such a degree in the first half, Vinny? Um, well, I suppose Rovers played a trade to back and sort of, we call it a box midfield with this sort of four in, in the sort of central area. Mm. Uh, where they got overrun was probably, um, Ludogratz were a quality side and they play under under pressure and, and had no real fears, weren't worried about sort of Rovers having dominance in terms of the number of bodies in there. They still made passes. But ultimately, I think the lesson, if I, I, I've seen a lot of, of teams this year, it, and I've seen Rovers sometimes um, struggle, I think, in the wide areas in terms of their shape. And while it works domestically um, in wide areas, they struggle tonight. I think um, the, the sort of first goal typifies that. It's a switch from from the left-hand side to the right-hand side. Sort of a 2v1. The ball is set back, ball into the box, and it's a brilliant header and a 1-0 down. So I think while they got extra bodies in that central area, they struggled in you struggled sometimes in that shape uh, against top class opposition, and I think uh, that sort of went against them tonight. Um, again, it's easy on the cheap seats to to see this stuff, but mm. I think they're vulnerable in the wide areas, and I think that higher level you go up, um, the more you get punished. Um, so I think if you look at the form this year, Richie, I, I've seen some games they've won. They haven't really bashed anybody. They've won by the odd goal here and there, and. They don't look like that they're going to create loads of chances for the most dominant team in our league. And ultimately, um, you know, they, they will have to question some of that, I think, as, as they go on developing Europe throughout this year. When you look at the players that, that Stephen Bradley does have his, at his disposal, you would figure that they should, on a domestic level, be winning games more comfortably and might be able to be more proactive in terms of how they attack games because they do have the Rory Gaffneys and Richie Tells and Graham Burks of this yeah. world and um, you've got creative players in there in midfield too like Jack Byrne wasn't used really tonight but you know he can certainly create midfield and might be the option as opposed to McCann next week but you kind of wonder why there is that element of conservatism around Shamrock Rovers given the talents that he does have at his disposal there Yeah domestically there's no doubt they've been outstanding a squad uh, from a European perspective, that that's different. Mm. It's different. And, uh, I learned that lesson. You, you you know you go down into the top teams you play wherever the whoever they are. AZ Alkmaar, Ludacris, their benches, and you've seen it tonight. Ludacris' bench was 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 really outstanding, um, and that's the difference. But domestically, I would say to you, um, for me, for me, just as an observer, someone who's now watching games left, right, and centre in the league. I would say uh, Shamrock Rovers are so good uh, dominating possession, but you would fear that they lack a little bit of pace at times, um, and that will that could play out in Europe. I would say so. Um, neat and tidy, great, you know, lots of stuff. Rory Gaffney has been one of the best players in the league this season at times, but that running power in behind, um, and they play with that system where their wing backs. Um, are, are fullbacks so they you know when you go back to 
uh, if you go back to even to Dundalk, which is easier for me to talk about, you think of Daryl Horgan, you think of Sean Gannon overlapping, Dane Massey overlapping, and uh, they're two different ways of playing. It's a bit like comparing, say, Liverpool to Man City in terms of the style. Man City is all about wearing teams down by pass, 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 and you have to be really brilliant to do that. And they are in domestically in Europe. I would wonder, I hope that's able to transfer onto the pitch and that would be a concern of mine. So I would say to you, they lack some pace at times uh, yeah. down the sides of teams and you've got to mix your game up. Looking and, looking and at the would, yeah, looking, looking at the weight element there, Vinny, sorry to cut across you, looking at the weight element there, they do have that, you know, wing back, wide player kind of situation, uh, certainly on the left with Andy Lyons. On the right, it's Ronan Finn. They're not exactly, a, you know, a like for like in terms of what they bring to the game one is uh, one is certainly you know made his made his bones as, as a fullback at Daily Mount Ronan Finn you know midfielder winger on occasion kind of withdrawn striker sometimes it, it, that lack of symmetry I guess has that been harmful to them in Europe? Um, well we're, going to, we're about to find out I think tonight um, we didn't get a lot from Ronan Finn uh, he's done a brilliant job uh, it's 50th game in Europe what a servant he has been to Irish football clubs in Europe. So we didn't get you didn't get a lot from tonight. Andy Lyons later in the game, a couple of decent runs, but it's such a difficult position to wing back. When you look at the modern game, you think you think that someone that springs to mind to play with the back three would be Chelsea. Mm. And when you think of, of Rudiger on the right wing whipping crosses in, but you also think Astela Quetta breaking from um the third centre half, the right side centre half and making two V ones. So uh, you would say, look, that, that's just an observation of mine in terms of where they need to create a little bit more. And and I keep saying the one thing I have learned in so the last eight nine years in, in European football is you've you've got to have pace. Uh, very few teams you meet in Europe are slow and sluggish. You to hurt them, you've got to have pace and pace in behind. And uh, Andy Lyons has had a good season domestically, but. It doesn't. It doesn't wash in Europe. This is a level above, and Andy Lines will be tested as a wing back this year in Europe. And um, I'd, I'd say a lot of clubs are, are watching some of these players, seeing can they make the next step up. And um, again, and Andy, for example, he, he more or less playing on the wrong side, so it, mm. it's a little bit more difficult. And he's done well in that position. Would you give them any hope in the second leg? Like, like at two 0 watching it, I was kind of figuring. Do you know what they've? They found a way into this game to a degree, and maybe there's a little bit of that was Ludogratz still in pre-season and have kind of slunk back into themselves a little bit. But at 2-0, you kind of definitely felt the back out of full Tallah Stadium. This was a job that could be done. 3-0 yeah, we, is very different. We have seen a lot of teams in Europe not travel well in Europe. It's it's just part of it. we've seen it. I mean, we, we played against what I thought was a brilliant Bate team and we we hammered them 3-0 in Tallaght for no reason. Just some teams don't travel well. Mm. The other thing that I took a little bit of heart from was it reminded me of the, the, that Vitesse Arnhem side last year. The difference is Sean Grover's a 26, 27 games into a season. And late in the games, the Irish team's fitness levels um, have, have taken over. And it's repeated itself again with Rovers this, this, this time. They got really strong as the game went on and their fitness was much better, I would say, than Ludacris. So they've only played two league games, a couple of European games. So they're only four or five games into a season where it's it's mid-season for Rovers. So that's a huge advantage for the Irish clubs when you come up against these teams. It can be a le- leveler late in the game. But with 3-0, uh, 
I, I fear I, I'd imagine Rovers could concede next week. I think mm. their Lillipert's attack is that good. So if they concede, it means Rovers have to score four. And that's a huge challenge in, in Champions League football. So uh, I'm hoping against hope that it's a, it's a memorable night, but it's going to be a really difficult one for them. They haven't created anything tonight to give you hope so yeah. far. Uh, they've got a couple of, of parachutes uh, to put them mildly because they will drop down into the third qualifying round of the Europa League should they exit at this stage of the Champions League and what will await them still is very much up in the air because uh, there's seven minutes to go in the uh, Croatian in Croatia tonight uh, Dino Zagreb won Scoopy the uh, North Macedonian champions won uh, but a hell of a result as well for Linfield in Belfast Bodo Glimt a side you may remember last year uh, put six past Jose Mourinho's Roma in Europe Bodo Glimt beaten by a goal it's nil tonight by Linfield up at Windsor Park a hell of a result for them and all of our football on off the ball brought to you by Skywatch Premier League Women's Super League EFL Scottish Premiership and much more live on Sky Sports um, while I have you Vinny I wanted to talk about this something of a a drain that's been ongoing through the course of of this season um, as regards talent and young talent from the League of Ireland over towards England in particular we can't ignore Italy obviously with Liam Kerrigan heading from UCD uh, over towards uh, Como um, and James Abanco obviously going from Pats to, to Udinese but we see Andy Lyons we've mentioned there he looks like he's going to be heading for Blackpool in the Championship um, Owen Toll has attracted the interest of Bolton uh, the Derry City defender and um, Promise I'm sure we learned today as well looks like he's going to be heading for a, a five figure sum to Fleetwood in League One in England it's it's not just me this does seem like things have kind of ramped up a notch in terms of players going mid-season over towards England Danny Mandry obviously going to Lincoln in recent weeks Dawson Devoy going to, to MK Dons there's been a lot of them and a, a lot of really good players and a lot of key performers for a lot of the top teams are suddenly going and it feels like a drain this year um, it's a massive problem for our game I think our game is struggling as a result of it I don't think our league is overly competitive at the moment because of it with the quality we lost last year and that's seeping into this year so when you look at some of the players like uh, Dara Barnes as well leaving Pats mm. when you look at some of the um, players that left say Drogheda last year uh, Redmond went to Crystal Palace Back in the day, he would have went to one of the top two or three teams, played there for a year or two before he went to England. So it's been a real drain, um, what we've lost to Georgie Kelly's. Um, um, we've just lost real talent over league. And I think the league is suffering as a result of it. Um, but there's no easy solution to it. Um, people will throw out, you know, Kurt Bay and different bits and pieces. It's the FEI's fault. It's the club's fault. It's 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 a player's market at the moment. And you've only to look at Luke McNally going to Oxford. Mm. And he's now just gone from Oxford uh, having a really good season. He's moved to Burnley in the Championship. And you would argue if he had a good season there, he's not far off an international place. Or Jamie McGrath going to St. Mirren and all of a sudden starting international football for on the way to Portugal, etc. So these players are chasing a dream. And uh, um, people will say, well, the clubs have to have long-term contracts in place. There isn't the finance in Ireland to have players on long-term contracts. And it's a, it's a player's market, um, huge amount of agents involved in Irish football now. Um, and there's the silly sort of, uh, what would you say, what, what's the term I'm looking for? Exit clauses, um, yeah. buyout clauses buyout on clauses, people's yeah. contracts. And they're quite low. But, but at the same time, if, for example, I'm representing a player tomorrow and I turn up at Bowles, if Bowles don't agree to that, I'll just take him up the road to 
Shelbourne or up the road to Dundalk. And it's very, very difficult for Irish clubs at the moment to compete. There English football, I go to a lot of games, as I said, and I sit in certain sections. There's been guys from Lincoln, Blackpool, Oxford, MK Dons. I've sat with them all. They're all here looking for a little bit of value. And um, it's very hard to stop players. And it's not an easy answer. And it's very easy to throw out people should do more. But it is a real concern for our game, I have to say, because uh, I think it's it's starting to play out in the pitch that um, how, the strength and depth is not there. How big is the, is the um, agent influence here? Because a lot of people might be surprised. Like they could, People hear agents... They might go as far back as, as Eric Hall chomping on his cigar and trying to sell as many, you know, Wimbledon players as he possibly can. Or the modern day version will be like, you know, your Mina Riolas or, or, or George Mendes, etc. That's how they view agent. But how prevalent is the role of an agent in League of Ireland football at the moment? Um, from from managing, it's huge. It's it's um, You might talk to a player about signing for your club. Um, you know, I've sat with a player for two and three hours, got to know him worked out what his family was like, then got into the, you know, the finance of it. Oh, you talk to the agent about that. That's the modern game we live in now. You speak about the best, the biggest agent in the world um, would have would would have clients in Ireland as well. That's part of the game. Um, why would you have, like, why would you have a, a player? Because in Ireland, if you were one, if you were one of the, you know, Ronaldo's agent, etc., because, it's 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 football is such a gamble at the moment that you, you you're rolling a dice. A player could be the next Ronaldo, Messi in four or five years' time, and kids 15, 16, 17, 18, all albeit not legally allowed, have an agent until I think 16. Open for correction on that. They have agents who represent them now, so it's it's a modern part of the game. Uh, every league of Ireland manager at every level is dealing with agents, um, even part-time clubs from UCD being the exception in one sense, as in the scholarship there, but from from Finn Harps all the way up, there's agents involved, contacting every manager, and it is now right front and centre, part of the game. And the agent's job, you have to remember, is to is get the very best deal for the player. Yeah. So that might be, I'll take, I'll, I'll say, I'll use Dundalk when I was there, and offer me a player, really interested in him. Yeah, but unless there's a... Uh, a buyout clause of 50,000 he's not going to sign for you if you don't agree to that just take him somewhere else and someone will agree to it so it is it is a difficult one and we're losing a lot of talent for small money um, like Danny Mandro gone for, for 30,000 makes no sense to me I don't know the ins and outs of the deal but um, I had a similar situation where someone came in for a really important player belonged to Dundalk um, I rode with our with our ownership uh, similar size fee, insisted he didn't play, he didn't leave, and he was instrumental in his beating um, uh, the talent side last year, which made maybe four, four, four hundred and fifty thousand pounds for the club, and uh, almost he scored two goals. So you work out who I'm talking about. Almost knocked out uh, Vitesse Arnhem, and by holding on to that player. Uh, the investment in him and, and staying away from that money was well worth it. So it, it is judgment calls. The club have to be brave, particularly the clubs in Europe. If you're still in Europe, you can't let your players go for cheap. I'm wondering out loud here, the 
exit clauses, the, the the escape clauses we've seen in terms of like numbers, they're all in around, they seem near in around the five figures. Promise I'm a share from what I hear is five figures. It's going to be add-ons. The, Danny Mandry was 30 grand, which became pretty public. Like, it's a vicious cycle because that kind of money, if a club comes in and offers the, the opportunity to the player, it behooves the player to listen to the opportunity that's available to them. But similarly, the club are getting stung for, like if Rovers progress in Europe, like, the thirty grand is like not doesn't compare to the money they could get if they progress in Europe. So you want to hang on to the player. You also want to pr- progress in Europe. But if you don't hang on to the player, you're not going to progress in Europe. So you're going to end up with a lesser sum of money. From an agent's point of view, I'm not going to point the finger here at anybody because that's dangerous territory legally. Um, is that a coincidence that the the numbers are so low compared to what they would get as regards European football oh. revenue? Like I certainly wouldn't be a spokesman for agents, but what I will say is it's the agent's job to do uh, the best deal you can for the player. So the, the smaller that um, release cause is, the better for the player. Um, but you do, so So in fairness, the agent has to do what's right by his client. Mm. Um, and, and, and that's just simple economics. And uh, football is, is, is governed by economics as much as anybody. It also allows an agent, um, also allow, allows an agent to lower the fee to increase his the sign-on fee for the player, for argument's sake, or the agent's fee, whatever the case may be. There's nothing illegal in that. There's nothing doing anything wrong. It's 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 it. As I said, it is definitely a player's market at the moment mm. in Irish football. And if you're yeah. anyway good, and listen, we, we all mentioned that the, the, the likes of the Danny Mandrew figure or or the promise figure seems to be quite low, but there has been some brilliant deals done as well. I mean, the Dara Bournes figure. From what I hear, is is a really good figure with add-ons. Um, you look at um, so, some of the some of the money, say Pats have, have earned recently. They've done really good business there. Jared Bryan, in particular, sends a lot of credit. So there there is good that comes out of it. The problem is we haven't got the talent pool uh, to keep losing these players, and you're starting to see now an influx of players coming from um, outside of Ireland into Ireland. So maybe Bill Hulsoys I know what he was doing all along I don't know that that thing of like because I remember listening to, to Keith Long recently um, um, talking about the markets because he he said that there's more value to be had because you're bringing in players from outside of the league and because obviously it's a, it's a summer league there's better you know a deeper talent pool in which to fish in the summer than there would be in the winter naturally speaking would it behoove the FAI to consider just from a player development and finances of a club aspect to consider a switch back to the winter football model or are we married to this now as a matter no, we of have to be married to it. We, we will not progress in Europe unless and Europe is the key for everything for Irish football to build and if we go back to winter football we're taking a step back into the, into the dark ages our facilities aren't good enough our pitches aren't good enough uh, they're barely good enough for summer football mm. and we just can't do it. But uh, Keith's point is well made. Like, I could sign a Latvian international uh, last, or Dundalk were to sign a Latvian international um, for a hell of a lot less money than an Irish-based player. Um, there is value in the market it, with, around Europe. We're starting to see that, as I said. There's a lot of teams now picking up players from and you do it. The problem is you do make mistakes with them because it's a different. You don't. You can't do the same amount of homework as you can do a nice player. But we're gonna have to dip dip into that market uh, because, like, our results in Europe 
are struggling at the moment. I would say it's a big test for Rovers. I do believe there's a group stages in the team this year um, because of the way it's set up. They've only to win one tie and they're in the conference minimum. Um, but but Derry had a difficult time. You would imagine Sligo just about got through, but that's a difficult tie for them. And, and Pats go again on Thursday. So we probably need a hand and we need players to come from outside of Ireland now to really help the league because we're, we're, at, we're at, we've done a lot of work. The, the crowds are brilliant. The clubs have really worked hard. The FEI, to be fair, have put good structures in place to help us to a point. Um, but what we can't do now is 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 the product start to drop and deteriorate. And you, unless you're involved with a European club, you can't explain that the, the sort of whole public, and not just the football public, but everyone has a huge interest in it. It, it really captures the imagination of, of the Irish public walking down streets. And it is so it is such an important to grow a game here that we improve in Europe. And I think we need a hand from, from outside of Irish base pool. Vinny, it's a pleasure as always, even if the, the, the tone is somewhat pessimistic this evening in terms of progress well, look, in Europe. And will be, I, I, I'm going to say, I think Rovers will make a group stages this year. Yeah. I hope they do. And that's something at least we can be positive about. So hopefully they do. Vinny, thanks so much for taking time out to speak to us this evening. There you go, it's Vinny Perth and uh, lots more to come on OTBM tomorrow morning as it relates to All-Ireland final build-up with Lee Keegan, no less, Andy McEntee and Barry John Keane all on the show tomorrow night here between 7 and 10, Enda McGinley and Colin Boyle will help preview the clash of Kerry and Galway and we'll get Brian O'Driscoll's take on Ireland's series win in New Zealand. Thank you to listen for listening tonight. Thank you to everybody who helped put the show together as well tonight. Tom Dunn is on the way after these. We'll talk to you tomorrow.